Two quick things before we get started. One, yes, this is a long episode. I tried to cut it down, but as I was editing, I was hanging on every word of Caitlin's, even though I was there for the original taping. And honestly, I just feel like there wasn't much fluff to cut. So if you're short on time, feel free to skip five minutes ahead and get straight to it. Number two, I've had people ask for clarification on some acronyms that get thrown around on this show a lot. B2B is business to business, usually done behind the scenes like a software company that sells a platform to a grocery store for keeping track of inventory. Something the grocery store end customer never sees. B2C is business to consumer, like a grocery store selling oranges to a consumer. Today we talk about B2B to C, which basically means a company's business model is built on selling a good or service to another business, which then offers it to their direct customers, you'll see what I mean. Hi everyone and welcome to Small Biz Gone Viral, an attempt via podcast to humanize the impact COVID-19 is having on small businesses and the humans that run them. I'm Grant LeBeau, your host and small business owner of an organic coconut energy bar company called Rickaroons. After seven years of hard work and small or non-existent paychecks, 2020 was going to be the year that made it all worth it. Revenue was forecasted to double or triple, big deals were in the pipeline, and then it was also very rudely interrupted. Small business ownership can be lonely in normal circumstances, never mind when your entire business is put on life support, and you're supposed to stay at home in pandemic purgatory with only your pet fish to console you. Other people pivoted to baking sourdough bread, I started a podcast as a way to tell the stories and struggles of small business owners out there who, like me, need to hear they are not alone. So if you know someone whose business has been affected by COVID and could use a friend, please share this podcast with them. At the very least, they will know someone was thinking about them. Okay, time for a fun fact. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, perhaps in response to being recently nicknamed Tear Gas Teddy, banned the use of tear gas on protesters. In case you need rationale beyond the obvious, according to Duke University professor Sven Eric Jort, there are sufficient data proving that tear gas can increase the susceptibility to pathogens and viruses. Studies on army recruits exposed to tear gas show an increase in respiratory illness. Obviously, not great timing in a pandemic that attacks the respiratory system. And in case you were wondering, the tear gas is actually banned in war, but the Chemical Weapons Convention does not bar their use against civilian populations during protests, riots, or other forms of upheaval. Which is interesting that we literally wouldn't use it on our own worst enemies, but use on our own people is fine. Anyway, on to our facts and figures. We begin today's facts and figures with unemployment. Last week, 884,000 people filed unemployment claims for the first time. That's historically terrible, but actually the second best week in the COVID era. Speaking of COVID, there are now 7.1 million active cases worldwide, due in large part to India's rising caseload. The U.S. still has over a third of the world's active cases and is a few thousand shy of crossing 200,000 deaths, losing roughly 800 lives daily. The stock market is all over the place, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 seeing its worst week since mid-March and down 11% from its high just two weeks ago. This is what happens when there's tons of uncertainty 
It's just hard to make plans and it's hard to forecast. Two things that create stability, which the market currently has none of. All right, interview time. My guest today is Caitlin Christine, founder and CEO of Gabby. After losing her mom to breast cancer under preventable circumstances, she had to fight for her own health care in her early 20s when she had similar symptoms. Only after choosing to have a double mastectomy against physician recommendations was her breast cancer diagnosed via the removed tissue. She has worked as a national speaker for leading nonprofits and genetic testing companies. Her company, Gabby, spelled G-A-B-B-I, is now taking a leading role in equipping women to take control and the healthcare systems to provide better care. She will share her journey from patient to advocate and CEO. Caitlin, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Grant. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on specifically today uh, because I had kind of a tough day and I feel like I'm just going to leave this interview with hope. Oh, I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I know your story, your origin story is very personal. Can you share with us your story? We're just going to jump right into this. Uh, share Love with it. us your story and, and how it led you to found Gabby. Sure. So um, I was in my senior year of college at the University of Denver with only one month left until I graduated and my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I dropped out of my senior year and moved home to be her full-time caregiver. Um, she was diagnosed with a mutation called BRCA1 that um, has only become more famous and well-known since Angelina Jolie announced that she has it and that she had a preventative double mastectomy and oophorectomy um, in order to save her life. But unfortunately, my mom didn't have that option. Her physician exhibited malpractice and did not test her when she should have. So she was diagnosed, and seven months later, she was gone. Um, and I was in my early 20s, again, like was supposed to have just been graduating from college, and I started having similar symptoms myself. I had two lumps in either of my breasts, and I went to my OBGYN and said, hey, I'm really concerned about this. This isn't normal for me. Can you check this out? And she, you know, palpated my breast lumps and said, you know, they don't look or feel like breast cancer. Plus, you're so young. There's, there's no way it is. And um, I was like, okay, great. But uh, I'd really like to get a mammogram or something. Can I just have that looked at? And um, So after really having to insist over and over again that I wanted it, I received a mammogram and um, it was concerning. So mammogram went to an MRI. MRI was also concerning. MRI went to ultrasound, ultrasound also concerning. And finally they did a biopsy and the biopsy result is what's called atypical hyperplasia, which means precancerous. And for someone who has a BRCA mutation and the cancer family history I do, um, typically it's, you need to go to surgery. But instead the doctor looked at that result and said, mm, it's probably just dense breast tissue or a false positive because of your age. And I basically said, bullshit. So I did research, um, met with different physicians, genetic, um, genetic counselors, breast surgeons, and I chose to have what at the time was considered a preventative double mastectomy. And in surgery, they found breast cancer and I was only 24. So after that, that's when I went into healthcare and I worked for a nonprofit and then um, the largest genetic testing company in the world where I was in health systems 
teaching physicians about hereditary cancer syndromes and helping them set up high-risk protocols so that they could screen and test their patients. And that's when I had had this patient perspective, but I had now this kind of backdoor into healthcare. And I realized, oh my gosh, what happened to my mom, what happened to me is a common thing, unfortunately. And there's a systemic problem. So I first got really angry and then uh, I did quite a bit of research myself to see really what is this problem? What's the root of it? How do we solve it? And then that's where Gabby came. So what was the job role that you had at the, you said at the world's largest genetic genetic testing company? What what were you doing for them? So I started as a a national patient speaker where I would go and speak to physicians and health systems and clinics, basically sharing my story to kind of like tug at their heartstrings and tell them, Hey, you like, I could be in your patient population. You need to do this. Um, and then they moved me into a clinical role where I was working as um, a clinical educator and hereditary cancer specialist. Um, and that's where I was working with the health system. Got it. It seems like th- one of my one of my first thoughts here is right away this goes to like the core of american healthcare and that it is essentially there's it's it's profit driven and that, that essentially money plays probably too big of a part into patient care and so when they look at you they go well your risk factors are low although genetics it seems like not that low but still they're looking at you going well you look healthy you're young therefore we're gonna err on the side of essentially it's not even erring on the side of caution it's like the opposite of that we're gonna err on the side of of averages which is not how you you should be treating the individual not the law not not averages right totally well i think it points out two things one the lack of personalization to your point that they were looking at me as that based off my age i should fit in this bucket and therefore in this bucket you don't have breast cancer at age 23 Mm -hmm. so you possibly couldn't because you're in this bucket um it, it it is outside the realm of possibility that these other factors could mean that i'm outside of this bucket Um, The second, I think, is the cost, which you also hit on. Um, You know, the physician, the first time I asked her for a mammogram, started talking to me about how expensive it was going to be because I was so young. And frankly, I was like, that's not your job, lady. That's my decision to make. So if I'm going to be worried about my health insurance bill or having to pay out of pocket, let me worry about it. Yeah. And what's scary to think about is you as a humans are really bad at making decisions in, in areas where they don't have any experience, right? It's why we're bad at planning for retirement. It's why we're bad at picking out life insurance. Like no one is, we haven't died before that we know of. So you as a 24 year old, it's disconcerting to say the least that you would be expected to be so vociferous and, right. and and adamant about and having to fight for yourself in order to get that patient care because you know having spoken with you a little bit before this i realized like y- you have a very uh powerful personality and and i could absolutely see you being like no let me tell you this is how things are going to go and i'm just thinking about what is the what is the converse of your personality you know if someone is introverted and soft spoken and and kind of 
and demure. And not that that's a bad thing. That's just, you know, that's just no. the, the way that the world works, right? We're not all cut from the same cloth. Totally. Would, would that person have gone another five, 10, 15, however many years until things were irreversible? So right. that gets us to you having eventually gone out and started this company, mm-hmm. which we, we certainly are, are going to address. Um, with such a close personal connection to the mission of your company, does that affect the way that you approach the business? Um, that's a good question. I think, uh, I think because I have such a close connection, it makes it easier for me to work more. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think also it increases the pressure that I put on myself. Um, and then third, it also helps in the sense of when I'm not feeling like it or exhausted or wanting to maybe reschedule a meeting or something to reconnect back to the mission. And it's, it's less about me and more about there are other women out there who need this, like kind of, I have to push forward. Um, and so it's a great motivator. Yeah. When I'm feeling lackadaisical, maybe some new juice bar doesn't get their coconut energy bars introduced to them as quickly as maybe I would like for the sake of my bottom line. But for you, you're working for such a bigger picture in mind that it, it is so much more important. I could see how it would be so much more consistently motivating. Is that also, is is there, do you ever find yourself maybe more emotionally drained because of that? Because that that tug never ends? Yeah. um, So I am really good at stuffing things and I typically don't um, like express necessarily how I'm feeling. I think I've gotten really good over the years at not initially reacting. Um, but that doesn't mean that that in and of itself isn't incredibly emotionally taxing. Um, you know, pushing things down all the time and not reaching into those emotions is very exhausting too. Um, I think also for me, because I hold myself to such a high standard and because if I don't do something or I'm having an emotional response to something that maybe I'm pushing down the guilt of me, you know, feeling basically what I'm saying is I have a hard time giving myself grace and compassion because the guilt that I feel for maybe, um, wanting to sit in my feelings when I go home at the end of the day and I'm not technically on the clock and maybe it leads to, you know, me either having too much wine to drink or, you know, binging on dark chocolate or whatever. And I feel miserable. And then if I'm like, not really wanting to get up the next morning when my alarm goes off at 6am, I'm feeling guilty because I let myself feel those emotions, which led me to improperly cope, which led me to not get enough sleep, which leads me to, I don't know if I can function on this call that I'm going to have at 7am in the morning. And um, just a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It it sounds like you are experiencing something that 
I would say many, if most, all, I don't know, small business owners certainly experience that feeling of, am I ever truly off the clock? There's always more yeah. I could be doing, but because always. of your personal commit or yeah, because of, of your, your personal uh, backstory that the, the highs would be higher and the lows would be lower. Um, but I, I think I, it's I, a great way to say it actually. Yeah. Um, um, I have a friend who said that to me, like your highs are really high, but your lows are pretty low. Um, but I am also, I snap back really quickly. I don't know if that's the other thing that he said, I snap back really quickly. And I don't know if that's true for all entrepreneurs. I don't know if it's a personality trait. I don't know if it's like just inherently baked into my DNA, but I do have really low lows and I do have really high highs. But when I have the low lows, they don't last as long. I yeah. Think, as you have to be able to turn, turn the page. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go ahead and, and talk a but little bit. But the sky about... is always falling. Right. Right. And only you can save it. Totally. So let's, let's go ahead and move on to. And no one else to... understands. Sorry. Right. No one else could ever understand. Yes. It, it... And that is why we have this wonderful podcast. Yes. To know that you're not alone, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's helping already. Let, right. Yes. You and me both. So, <laughs> and I, just, just like, just like I hoped it would, you know, coming into this, this episode, let's talk about your business model. Um, you know, mine is simple. I, I, I make a good, I sell it to someone, they pay money. Uh, the person okay. who buys it is usually the one who's consuming it your model is very different. Who is the, who is the user and who is the payer? Ooh, good question. Um, so we describe ourselves as B to B to C. So our business sells to the other business of the health systems or uh, insurance payers and our end user, and they sell to, or they don't sell, they give to our end user, which is the female patient or female consumer. So our end user is females and our customer, our current customers are health systems. Got it. And what is the service that you are providing to the, to the end consumer, AKA the patient? Okay, cool. So to the um, end patient, we are empowering them to know their body and understand their health so that they can proactively seek the care that they need. Okay. Expand on that just more a, a specifically, little bit more. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. So basically, um, our software is a risk calculator and a woman is able to assess her lifetime risk of breast cancer. Um, eventually, we'll, we'll um, expand into other cancers and other preventable diseases. But right now, it's um, lifetime risk of breast cancer. You get a specific calculation and then from that, a personalized action plan. So based off of the data that you input into our risk calculator, we're able to give you a personalized action plan that tells you what you can do and what you need to do to decrease your risk of breast cancer now. So starting today and long term. So that can be everything from diet and lifestyle changes. Uh, it can be uh, visits, certain types of visits with your physician. It can be diagnostic tests. It can be certain medications, et cetera. Um, and then we allow you to self-select what you want to do first. So maybe you're a little bit overwhelmed by the result that you have like a 40% risk of breast cancer for your lifetime. 
so you just kind of want to like dip your toes in this. So at first, let's look at your meat consumption. Let's look at how many days a week you get your heart rate up and see how that has impacted your risk for breast cancer and what you can do to decrease it by getting your heart rate up maybe one or two extra days a week and reducing your meat consumption from seven days a week to four days a week kind of thing. Um, so you get to self-select what you wanna do. Uh, and then we walk you through that entire process as well as connect in our community of other women who are doing the same thing. They're understanding their risks, they're learning, and they're taking steps to proactively decrease their risks um, and you get to connect and share with other women while you're going through that process together. And that is something that is covered by insurance. So yeah, or put differently, how does that get billed? How totally. do you get paid? So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So um, right now we're not working with insurance companies, um, but this is, this is a service that the health system is offering to their patients. So the patients or our end user does not have to pay for this, the health system does. So great example, you're in California, um, Sutter Health System or Providence Health System or Adventist say, um, they would pay for our product to give to their female patients. And what is the benefit to them? Um, so many things, uh, we, uh, right now, so there's, uh, I'm just going to kind of give this background because I think a lot of people don't know how there's been a shift in healthcare. So there's a big shift that's gone on from what's called a fee for service model, which basically is the more patients you see, the more visits, the more procedures, the more tests, the more money, there's a fee for everything. Now the shift has gone to what's called value-based care and there's about 52% of the health systems in the United States have switched to value-based care. And it's projected that by 2025, all of our health systems in the US will have converted to value-based care. And basically they're incentivized to have better outcomes and healthier patients. And of course you're like, well, duh, but not really because Previously, they would nickel and dime you for every single thing that you would do. And now um, there's a, an organization that's called the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS. And they basically set these guidelines of these measures or metrics that each health system and physician should be meeting. And then each health system gets, prioritize, gets to prioritize six to 12 that uh, they not only have the capabilities to meet, but that they think that they can do well at. And then they're reimbursed based off of the level at which they meet or exceed those measures. So a great example would be like um, breast cancer screening. That is a measure that a lot of health systems have. Um, a lot of health systems are failing at that measure. So we're able to help these health systems meet their measures because we are educating the patients in a way that they want to be educated, that they understand. It's not super clinical, although it's rooted in um, medicine. And uh, women can see themselves in our application and connect with one another. So that encourages them to engage in something that typically is very um, confusing. Um, I mean, isolated. 
Exactly. So many ups and downs, um, a web. So um, we help them engage their patients to ultimately seek the care that they need. And with that, that's helping them meet their metrics. It's reducing patient leakage. It's diversifying their patient population, bringing them new patients. The list goes on. So all, all sorts of benefits. All Do you... I feel like we could just spend a, a, a whole episode just on the on the pre-COVID aspect of it, and we so we we need to move on, and I, and I need and I need to uh, just let some of this natural curiosity go. But it seems okay. like there are just so many benefits that once you are truly up and running, um, and you and you, it, it seems like the the number of customers that you will be able to acquire should be seemingly endless. It, is there is there anyone else who's doing what you are doing? Just real quickly. Yeah, yeah, good, great question. Um, there are lots of companies who are doing similar things. Um, not everything that we plan to offer, um, and a lot of the solutions that are um, currently existing and currently adopted by health systems were developed within pharmaceutical companies, the health systems, or insurers themselves. So the big differentiator there is one, our users use us, you know, like the females <laughs> actually understand, like they want to engage. And the example I like to give is when was the last time you ever logged onto your patient portal? Oh boy. I have a patient portal. Exactly. You know, like the, the fact yeah. that you can now message your doctor is super cool, but also no one really knows what else to do in there because it's confusing and unapproachable and it's all clinical information and clunky. So um, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing things like this, but they're not taking the same approach. Right. It seems like, and it seems like you are doing for healthcare almost what mint.com did for personal finance, right? Quicken existed before, but that was like this old legacy program. And basically someone came along and was like, Hey, let's put some pretty graphs on this. It's still super, yeah. you know, it's, it's still, uh, quantitatively driven and is just presenting metrics to you in a much more user-friendly way. Um, I like that analogy. In fact, you know, what's funny about that is that Early on, I think in like January, February, I was using the analogy at first, and this was before we really had solidified our business model. I was using the analogy of like the Credit Karma or Mint.com for women's health. Um, and although that's not still true, uh, it's it's a, a like analogy. Yeah. So just as we kind of finish up the the pre-COVID set here and, and kind of lay the groundwork for how COVID has, has affected your business. Just real quick, how many employees do you have? Okay, so we're pre-COVID, right? We're still pre-COVID, yes. Okay, so pre-COVID, um, it was, there were, uh, it was me full-time and two people who were part-time, both of them who were developers. Um, and I was living um, on at a girlfriend's house um, and had been for nine months. Well, not nine months at that point, but like maybe six months at that point. And all my stuff was in storage and I didn't have a car. And um, uh, we were in firm negotiations, like final conversations with what was going to be our first paid pilot. 
and I was going to be speaking and launching the company at South by Southwest. Okay, got it. That's so pre-COVID. you pre COVID. So you were going to go to an event that had lots and lots of people standing shoulder to shoulder. You were going to pre- present in person and you had your first your first user lined up, which means usually we compare what your 2020 revenue was going to be compared to uh, 2019. 2019, your pre-revenue and 2020 was going to be the big year. So 2019, from a personal standpoint, you were you were saving, you were scrimping, you didn't have a car, you were basically crashing Living on the couch, put, going yeah. 110% into Gabby. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and how did you... How did you have two software engineers who are not the cheapest people in the world, especially when you're living in the state or or state adjacent to Microsoft? Right. right? Uh, How do how how are you funding those people and those developers? Um, So we'll get into this more, I'm sure, once we go into like COVID times. Um, But one of them was a contractor, um, and she was giving me a really like good deal. Um, and then one of them, um, but that's a whole nother story because we ended up not using anything that she did for us. Side note. Oh boy. I know. And then the other one was someone who reached out to me on Twitter because they heard what I was doing and heard about Gabby and basically just wanted to be part of it. So um, they were pro bono. Wow. And the, the reason why I ask is because I know you had, you, you still have not raised any money, correct? Correct. So we're so you, bootstrapped and it was all for my savings. So that is drained. Okay. And the reason why I'm so particularly curious about that is because your website is gorgeous and looks like it puts any healthcare website that I've been on to like to absolute shame. And oh, okay. even last night when I was prepping for this interview and I was, I had my, I showed my wife your your website and you know her jaw basically dropped and was like wait this is like how big of a company is this and so that, that's why I, I i ask those those particular questions thank you uh okay last question before we move on who okay. is your oh well i said last question who is your <laughs> ideal client Ooh. Um, from from uh, from from who is your ideal business partner? I should say the, who who's actually paying. So I know the ideal customer end user, essentially all adult females yes. at this point, right? Yeah. So but, uh, and so like paying customer. Yeah. Um, I would say um, Planned Parenthood, Sutter Health, uh, Peace Health, Sloan. So let's pretend. I'm a 33 year old male and I have no idea. Yeah. And I don't know what those, those things are. Oh, okay. So they're large health systems. Okay. Just in, so just broadly large Mm -hmm. health systems are, are are your target. I would say large innovative health systems. Innovative is probably the key point there. Um, and innovative, um, uh, health payers. So the insurance companies as well. Okay. Got it. Truly last question before we move on to our mid COVID set. Your what was your pre-COVID plan for 2020, and maybe some so incorporate into that some of your stretch goals for this year. Cool. Um, so it was, you know, launching at South by Southwest. I was buying into the Airbnb dream of launching at South by Southwest, which we all know is not a 
real thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. Um, and so I was going to be speaking at South by Southwest. I was going to, you know, make some great connections there and meet investors. And we were finalizing this deal for this paid pilot. So we were going to be launching that like early summer. And then that was going to lead to traction and market validation. And then, um, I was going to raise capital magically and then be able to hire and pay a team. And then the next thing, you know, by the end of the year, we had multiple paying customers and that was, that was, that's what would 2020 was going to be. Okay. Fantastic. I think that that set the table perfectly to move on to the mid COVID set. But before we do that, as always, it's time for our, guests unsponsor the unsponsor is for those of you first-time listeners is an awesome business run by awesome people who produce an awesome product that deserves a shout out and optimally the patronage of our listeners and also just to be clear this company has no idea that you're talking about them as is a a true unsponsor right i love it uh, before we get to how you've pivoted or hurdled right over covid who is your unsponsor? Who is today's show not brought to us by? Today's show is not brought to us by Rattle. My girl Liani started Rattle and she has a platform that helps solopreneurs brainstorm with unlike minds. So the idea is that you have a problem that you need to be solved and you get the same ideas a lot of times when it's the same people in the same industry giving their ideas. So let's bring people from different perspectives, different mindsets, and different experiences to solve your problems. It's all remote and digital, and um, you should totally go check it out at getrattle.com. Love it. Getrattle.com. Get and then R-A-D-D-L-E.com. Okay, let's move on to mid-COVID. So According to our show's timeline, COVID in the U.S., essentially, st- we, we use March 1st as the start date because that was when okay. the first recorded American death was mm-hmm. related to COVID. So walk me through the timeline of your COVID professional experience uh, in the, let's say, March and April. So March 13th, the national emergency was am- announced. March 13th was also the day I was supposed to speak at South by Southwest. March 13th was also the day we were launching our company. So I made the decision to still launch it. Obviously didn't go to South by Southwest. And we were also finalizing with our first um, paying customer for this paid pilot. Um, By the end of that day, it had felt like a total completely anticlimactic. Um, I wasn't at South by Southwest. I was at a WeWork office in the Pearl. Um, We had blasted things out on social and had a ton of people complete our initial assessment, which was great that we were able to put a case study together from. Um, But the client dropped out and uh, any investors that were interested at that point also were like, no, we are not um, investing now. So that's March 13th. And then I went through a little bit of a mental breakdown. Um, that's a little extreme, but that's I fair. basically, 
yeah, yeah, thank you. I was like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Like, do we need to change our business model because now the health systems and they're not doing anything because COVID and patients are afraid to go in, but then also all these people are taking up all the hospital beds. And so do we really even tell the health systems and do we go direct to consumer? But I've already thought about that and I don't think that's the way to go. And then, you know, do we go to the enterprise? I mean, it's just like crazy. And so I had a really sweet friend who got me an Airbnb because I was also, mind you, living at a friend's house who got me an Airbnb for a week. And I checked myself into this Airbnb and basically just like ate and sat on the couch for a week and, you know, sobbed and then sat on the couch more. And then I love that you say you, 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 you checked yourself in like that, the way that the terminology that people usually use when it's like, I checked myself into rehab, you know, you, you, you checked yourself into like mental recovery, mental, mental rehab, mental relaxation. You, you went on like a mini brain vacation and treated yourself to like some Cheetos and ice cream. Totally. Well, and also I think, uh, just from a personal standpoint as an entrepreneur, like up to this point before the mental breakdown where I checked myself into my Airbnb, um, I was waking up at like 5 a.m. and I would and I would do morning reading and uh, visualization and prayer. And then I would have hot yoga at 6 a.m., be done at seven. I would go to um, my wellness club and sit in the steam sauna and then take a shower and read some, read some more while I'm in the steam uh, sauna and then get ready and like be ready to start my day by 8 a.m. and like work, 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 work. And then I was probably staying up till at least midnight, if not 2 a.m. And then do it all over again. So I was exhausted. I was rarely eating. And if I was eating, I was like going for French fries. And so then COVID happens, check myself into the Airbnb. And I literally, I mean, I sat and I didn't do anything. I didn't go anywhere. I slept until like 7 a.m. Um, Whoa, vacation. Mode. I know. Right, right. <laughs> but like forced vacation for sure. Yeah. It didn't feel like a vacation either. It's kind of all a blur since then, honestly. What month is, month is it? Oh, yeah, July. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, March. what month is it? I know. I, I, yeah, I was just writing something the other day and was talking about Q4 or, or, or you know, how 2020 is going to end up. And then I realized, oh, we're, we're basically on the back half of 2020 already. Totally. It, 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 it seems, it seems like we've been in this for a while which we have, but we literally have like nothing to show for it because we've had these hodgepodge, you know, unfederalized, not, you know, there's no, there's no coordinated national response. And so basically businesses have been just absolutely crushed. And yet somehow we're still setting world records. Like every single day we're setting new records for number of COVID cases. Sorry, that was my own little uh, <laughs> expression no, of, of how fine. I'm feeling about my business right now. Yeah, but well, I'm sure, you. like you, I'm sure you all tried to apply for whether it was unemployment or the PPP loans or the you know um, the EIDL. So that was also you know after that, then it was very quickly trying to apply for all these things, and of course, it being a fucking nightmare, and you know it's no phones, no one can get to talk to a real human. And then the websites are breaking. Uh, did you apply for the, any of those loans at all? Oh yeah. Okay. 
so I, I mean, I don't know if you had the same experience in California, but in Oregon, it was just miserable. Um, the, like websites were breaking and then they were asking you to mail in your documentation. We were like, what century are we living in? And then finally, like three weeks in, they get a new website that's all updated and it still um, uh, sends you an automated email. And then I still have not heard back. And it's- You still haven't heard July. back? Still haven't heard back. Wow. So disaster. Oh, I mean, I, I, I could just pile onto that all day. I will say my PPP experience was actually fantastic. And it was because I, I oh. had printed out, I had everything in paper uh, and I just walked it into my bank and had like a scheduled time. And we had, wow. we had the money r- relatively quickly. Uh, I will say to, to kind of piggyback on your frustration with like the sentiment, what century are we in the other day? Uh, I was applying for a local grant here in San Diego mm. and mm-hmm. they required the original letter from the IRS with my federal employee ID number. Never mind that I yep. I know what my I know what my federal employee ID number is. Like I you know, oh, I they wanted the, the original no, letter. They want the letter. Okay. So I call the IRS and I'm like, hey, I, I need I need the letter. And and they can't email because they're the IRS. Of you know, course. they're 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 super siloed at the IRS, right? So they can't email, uh, they can't mail. The only way they could get me this form was if I was standing in person at a fax machine. I don't have a fax machine. No, so I'm like no literally one has ca- a fax machine. <laughs> of course, because it's 2020. So I'm like literally calling other businesses. Hey, do you, do you have machine? a fax machine? So I end up going to my local print shop, utilizing their fax machine. The IRS ends up sending me a random woman's like 1099. I'm on the phone with them and I, I'm like, hey, just so you know, you just faxed me uh, a 1099. And the woman goes, oh no, that, that wasn't me. I, I don't even have access to that. And I'm just like, well, I, I'm pretty sure this random print shop in North Pacific Beach, San Diego, isn't just getting random faxes from the IRS. Like it's obviously something, you know, one minute before I'm expecting another form. So anyway, that's my little mini rant about how inefficient the IRS is. Well, and also, you know, how is that, and to your point, like how is that any safer and secure than actually, you know, emailing or even mailing something to you? It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, where were we in this timeline? March, okay. April, March. Ba- back to you. Yes, it sounds okay. like it was. You were having a great time, great eating a bunch time. of ice cream, sleeping until right. seven a.m., watching your business essentially sit in a pile of flames. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I guess the good thing was, and like to be honest, I didn't have any employees, so, um, you know, I, I had it really good compared to a lot of people and that I all of a sudden wasn't going, how am I going to make payroll? Because I didn't have a payroll to make. Um, so that's a huge blessing and gift. Um, it was more of ex- planning on this thing to happen and then, you know, it not happening, but not only it didn't happen, the world changed. So, um, the one positive that came from my decision to still launch on the day the national emergency was announced as you know, all of COVID is happening was that um, it got us some exposure and I, it led to the team that I have now and them reaching out based off of that exposure. Um, So next thing you know, going from like, 
two part-time people to now we have a team of 11 and, um, you know, additional exposure coming our way in April, we got featured in Portland monthly magazine. Um, and then in May business insider, um, and I started, I was able to get, oddly enough, eventually I was able to get a contracting job starting in May, um, just on the side so that I could pay, I could pay bills. And I was just really dying as an extreme term, but really struggling. I, one of the biggest learning lessons, honestly, in the last year, um, the last nine, the nine months until June, I was living at friends' houses and all my stuff was in storage um, because I was saving money in order to funnel all that I had into the business. And um, uh, what I realized was that if my basic needs aren't met, I can't do anything else well. And so while trying to grow a business from nothing, if, you know, I don't have a way to get around and if I don't feel like safe and secure in my home. If, if I don't have things around me that make me feel loved, safe, taken care of, if I don't feel like I have a good working environment, um, I wasn't able to, uh, I wasn't able to, um, act and respond and grow the business in the way that, uh, I would have liked. So, um, you have to address Maslow's hierarchy and, small business ownership is never a, well, very, for most of us, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And that whole grind it out mentality, you know, the, um, which you can find plenty of Instagram, Instagrammy motivational speakers who are like, you know, 24 hours a day. No, there are, you know, you need to be doing whatever you do 22 hours a day. Like if you're sleeping, you're not making money, right? But that's great. Except when you are starting a company that has a ridiculously long sales cycle because you're selling to multi-billion dollar insurance providers and healthcare providers. And the sales cycle is, I don't know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, right? I mean, these are not like easy decision makers or easy decision points to get to. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be taking care of yourself. Right. And I think the other point is, um, you know, when you, when you think about the whole Silicon Valley mentality and not to discount any of these businesses, but like, I'm not creating the next coolest fun, like, you know, app to show what I'm doing all day or, you know, filter to make me look or, or product that what I'm not doing something like that. And again, not to discredit those companies, but I'm doing something really big and I'm trying to change a system. And so it just, it takes a lot more, I think. And, and it, it is a slower growth process. I also think because of that, it's not something that like virally catches on. Um, right. And the worst advice that I was given was I was going, are you familiar with Y Combinator? Yeah. Okay. So like, uh, I was, I was going out to meetings at YC and meeting with investors in the Bay. I got to pitch at Google. I was doing all these super cool things and all the investors or kind of thought leaders in the startup space in Silicon Valley were like, you know, first of all, they were white men. Second of all, um, telling to me, you know, if, if, if you're not a hundred percent in this, like if we can't tell that you're a hundred percent in, so that means you need to be working this full time. Cause I was contracting while building this company at first. So, um, you know, if you're not a hundred percent in, if you're not working full time, then we, 
we're not interested because we, we, we can't, you know, if you're not all the way in, then why would we go in? And, you know, if you're not putting every cent you possibly can into this company, then Matt, you're still not, you're, you're not fully bought in and therefore we're not going to be bought in. So my decision to leave my apartment that I love, um, and live at a friend's was because of some dumb, I'm about to, I was going to say something totally explicit, but I'm trying to contain myself because I know I just, okay. Anyways, yeah. some dumb guy in Silicon Valley and multiple, honestly, multiple who said, yeah, you need to be putting all this money into the business and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, a great way to save money. I'll go live at my friends for, and again, I was thinking it was just going to be a few months, which ended up turning to nine months miserable. And I was so unhappy as well as just not being able to grow in the, in the way that I wanted to. So again, to, to what you're saying, like it is a marathon, not a sprint. And I'm still learning how to take care of myself. But the biggest step in me taking care of myself was getting my own apartment during COVID. Wow. That, that is uh, certainly a lot for anyone to handle at any given time, but, uh, you know, compound that with just all of the ancillary stresses or direct, very direct stresses of, of course, the times that we're living in with yeah. COVID. So one, the way that the PPP works is it's based off of your prior payroll. So you said that you haven't yet received final word on the PPP. Is that right? Right. So I was able to apply for the PPP for the contracting work that I had done in 2019. Okay. Got it. So you, but I still have not received any word. Got it. Moving to the number of employees that you have, you said you're now up to 11. Have you been able to have, have you now received any investors or have you, do you have money coming in? How, how are you affording 11 employees? I'm who not, all look very I'm, qualified from the bios on your website. Yeah, I'm not. Um, again, I would say one of the most amazing things that I'm grateful for that came from us launching on the day that the pandemic was announced as a national emergency um, was some of the exposure that we've been able to get. And um, every single one of my employees is pro bono. Wow. That is incredible. You are definitely the first person on the show to say that they have a full staff of pro bono workers. I would say if there's something I'm most proud of, it's my team for sure. Um, I, yeah. uh, I wouldn't incredible. be here without them. And uh, um, yeah, they're, they're really great and they're super dedicated. What's also really cool is they all have a personal connection to what we're doing. That was going to be my and next question. Yep. So, you know, it's a team of all women and one guy, which mm -hmm. is really cool. And, um, you know, the, the, the lone male, uh, reached out to me on Twitter and he lost his mom to undiagnosed congestive heart failure. And basically was like, you know, I can see how this could be for, all sorts of things, conditions and diseases. And I just know that if my mom had known what was going on, if she knew the questions to ask, she could have asked them and then perhaps she'd still be here. So he's on the team. And, um, and then there's um, multiple people who've had um, grandmothers, mothers, aunts, sisters with breast cancer or ovarian cancer. There are some who have really struggled with things like UTIs and um, have 
uh, starting menopause and struggling to find correct information. And so it's just, just, it's a really amazing team of people who are passionate about getting this in the hands of women because they know what it's like. So basically you have the most dedicated staff of all time who are all very personally invested and are they full-time, part-time doing it on the side of kind of a mix? A mix, a mix. Okay. Um, yeah, definitely a mix. And just a side note, I want to say this. Um, I received a letter from, uh, I pitched to uh, a funds the other day and um, because I am uh, trying to raise capital. I am raising capital positive. Um, uh, and one of the responses back was, you know, wow, it's really impressive that you have a team that's all pro bono, but it's also really concerning that, um, you know, it, for us, it sends off a red flag that maybe they're, they're not as dedicated because they're, um, they're not getting paid and they don't have equity. And the fact that they're not super interested in equity right now is really concerning about just their level of dedication and, um, and uh, that maybe they don't believe in what you're doing. And I was just like, okay, well, uh, see ya. I would draw the exact opposite. I think I feel like a normal person would draw the exact opposite conclusion from that. Like, if, why would someone who's not invested be participating in any sort of way? Yeah, that's what I would think too. And I've had a couple other investors allude to like, huh, that's like kind of concerning. But then I've had what I would say is the more, I don't know, the investors that I would want on my cap table be like, wow, that says a lot. Yeah, yeah. So that does kind of bring me to my next question, which is you had investors, basically the whole world uh, hit the pause button in March, right? Yeah. N not because of any sort of, it's funny that there was a, a national emergency announced, but with no national plan, <laughs> nationally coordinated plan, totally. which is my latest thing to rant about, by the way, because I just had, I've just started mentally having these, like, I feel like I, I was, I was strong for the first four or five months of this. And it was just in the last week and a half where I kind of hit a tipping or hit, hit a breaking point of saying, my personal wealth is very much tied to the company that I have poured my heart and soul into for the last seven years. And we were at this point where we were going to double this year and this was going to be our year where it was all going to be worth it. And simply, I think because of the, the explicit decision to not wear a mask at the executive level and provide that, that, uh, that, that example for the country to follow and then to not mandate it, we are still in this six, five, six months later, we're like the only real uh, developed country in the world still mm -hmm. like struggling and setting records. Basically it's, it's us, you know, Brazil and Mexico who are trending in the, in the wrong direction. And it's so preventable, but I, there's no question out of that. That's just my little rant. So I, I appreciate you listening to me, Caitlin. No, no, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've been seeing what's going on in Portland. Yeah, it's 57 straight days of protests, 58 straight days of protests. Now you have the, the lines of moms out there in, in bike helmets and, you know, some homemade masks, essentially protecting the, the protesters as a result of uh, federal police, whatever, being sent in who are 
in you know uh, SWAT garb and what it, the story that has made uh, national news lately is that p- protesters have been pulled off the street and put into a van and taken away to an undisclosed location and so that is in addition to everything else that's going on in the COVID world now we have that is, right is, well and I that's exactly what I was referring to and I wanted to bring that up um, just because when you're saying we didn't have like a national rollout of certain guidelines that's the other thing is you know portland was one of the first cities to shut down um and we've been one of the last ones to open up and still uh, you know our rates obviously are rising um and the fact that there was my brother was in arizona and there dining out like it's no big deal and without masks and things and then he was able to fly on a plane and come to Oregon and he's like wait wow everything's shut here like completely closed and I'm like yeah you're the first person I've seen outside of what like a doom screen so it's just crazy that we can be in the same country with so many different so many different on. policies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no yeah. wonder why the EU is saying, Hey, sorry, America, you can't, you come. can't come. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Back to the behavior of investors, which is where that originally started before oh. I went on my little tangent there has have investors started to come back yet? Because we know that people that, that essentially the whole country, the whole world, got really, really conservative in individual behavior on a corporate level, on institutional beha- uh, levels. Have you started to see investors come back and be willing to put money into something like Gabby? Yes and no. Um, to be honest, like COVID has been really good for us in that finally, it's specifically in healthcare, Healthcare has been on the precipice of needing to adopt digital solutions for decades. And finally, COVID is something that literally kicked them off the cliff into the abyss in order to adopt digital solutions. For example, telehealth. You know, it was previously not something that would be covered by insurance. It was just like a nice to have add on thing. And, you know, the telehealth rates have gone up by 9,000% since COVID started. Is that a real so, number? It is. Wow. 9,000%. 9,000. I actually posted it on LinkedIn, I think this last week. Wow. Okay. So yeah, so tr- truly uh, change, not, not just changing, uh, not just changing and like, like with a natural evolution, the way that the consumer behavior, but just a gigantic astronomical inflection point and in a way that will be uh, looked back on, I think as like the turning point in telemedicine. Exactly. Exactly. And really, and that's where, that's why I say, you know, healthcare hasn't really adopted a lot of these digital tools. It was really big to have electronic medical record systems and that you couldn't be on paper, but even those are so archaic. And so now really that I know this, this just, again, this shove into the digital age, if you will, that everything is needing to be digital and all the health system payers are needing to adopt these digital tools. Um, Okay. That was my own tangent. Um, oh, so COVID has been um, really good for us 
because um, digital is now, it's at the forefront of all these health systems minds, which is great, more so than it was before. Um, in terms of investors, a lot of them get that. A lot of them see that now, which is great. Um, I, right before, like really that week um, before uh, the national emergency was announced, um, I was taking a lot of investor meetings and was trying to close some money. And then very slowly, they all started saying, uh, you know, we're actually not investing until we understand what more is going on with COVID, et cetera. And eventually none of them were like, no, we're, we're not investing. So now fast forward to current state. And like in the last two weeks, I've had over 30 investor meetings and they're all actively investing not in Gabby at this point, but they're all actively investing and they're taking meetings. So that has definitely um, changed and that they realize that this is not going away and it's a new normal. And so they have to deploy capital. Right. So kind of wrapping up this, the, the mid COVID segment here, you now have your first customer, I believe. The and was yeah. it the original customer that had hit the pause button back in March? Yeah, that's what was super cool. Was that I tried to um, just provide value and support during the time when they were like, "We are all hands on deck dealing with this COVID issue. We just can't right now." And so every once in a while, I would check in and maybe send an article, update them on some changes we had made, ask them if there was any way we could help. And it, it, it was like three email, emails that never went, uh, that they never responded to. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, one of them they responded to like, hey, thanks so much. Um, you know, I know I haven't responded, but we've, we've been reading your emails and really appreciate it. You know, we've just been heads down, blah, blah, blah. And then about a month after that, and so this was about a month and a half ago, um, the CEO of the health system reaches out to me again and says, hey, we have our head above water and this is still really important to us and we really need to do this because so now I'm no longer the CEO of the health system. The thing is, is that none of these quality measures have gone away. None of these metrics that the health systems have to meet have gone away. And also I started saying to people like bodies don't quit. So even if we're really concerned in being, um, the health systems are being um, overrun with COVID patients. There are still women who need annual exams. There are still women who are needing, have concerning lumps in their breasts and need a mammogram or a breast MRI. There are still women who, um, you know, need to get their pap smear and, and, and they're having um, UTIs or they have something, they need someone to look at it. And it's like this whole, the whole world has been put on hold. And even there's a portion of that that telehealth can't solve. So um, them reaching out was like, hey, yeah, we know that this is happening and that bodies don't stop. And we need to be able to meet these, these goals and help our patients. So they now are our first customer. They came back to us and we're launching with them um, a paid pilot on September 1st. That is amazing. And you're in a world where two, three, four customers, like you can build a business around that because these are multi, multi-billion dollar organizations. I don't even know where that question is going. It's really just saying that having your first customer means you are no longer pre-revenue. 
it take it makes you more valuable to investors because you're, totally. it's, you're you have your paid proof of concept right yeah. you have you have a working you have a working product that will be deploying in september do you have has has that helped you in your investor meetings and has it helped you um attract new does it does that feather in your cap help you present to additional customers and say hey we're now working with x or can you even share x do you just say we're working with a large healthcare provider um so a couple things um you're totally right uh you know, essentially we can have a profitable business um, with just a few customers because of um, the fees that we can charge the health systems. Um, however, this first health system is in, in the grand scheme of things, like if, if there are sizes, if there's extra small, small, medium, large, extra large in terms of health system size, they're extra small. Um, okay. Which to be fair, I think is a great way for us to start. Um, but so they're small, so they're definitely not one of those multi-million billion dollar health systems. Um, but they are paying us and they're our first customer. Um, okay. That was my first point. The second point was. Does the feather in your wow. cap help you move on oh, to investors? And yes. Thank you. Um, Okay, so uh, yes, it does. What I will say is that I tried to raise money before now, and it feels completely different. Uh, it feels like this is the right time. I have all my ducks in a row. Um, and previously, it was like me being told that I needed to and had to raise money, and so I was trying, but, you know, and everyone's saying like, oh, this is a great idea. And of course, I wanted to be like, you know, great idea. I do have something. I have people around this. I have interest. It's more than an idea, people. And yet, um, they were still just seen as an idea. Whereas now, I feel so much. I feel more confident in the conversations I'm having with investors. They're able to really acknowledge that the traction and progress we've made. And I Validated, think even yeah. more, exactly, even more once um, uh, we are um, collecting the data with this health system, that's going to be even more, you know, fuel to that fire to go get additional health systems. Because I think right now it feels like a little bit of a standstill. This health system, I don't know what it is. I'll have to ask them that they believed in me and us in our really early assessment. Um, and so once we are able to gather data from them, I think it'll be much easier to go to these other health systems because they'll see the data and the, the results that we've been able to get and go, oh my gosh, yes, we want to get on board. But it's definitely helped with investors. So kind of as we start to wrap things up here, what does, what does a, well, first of all, how, how long is the normal, is, is what you imagine to be a normal sales cycle, just in terms of timing? Um, I've been told in healthcare, so in B2B healthcare sales, I've been told 12 to 32 months. 12 to 32 months. Okay. So it seems like it would be a very difficult industry to be in without having a very long runway. So to already have your first paying customer within your first two years is kind of a huge victory. I want to take that notion and move into, we'll say, 
the rest of this year and moving into 2021, where do you see things going? How much uncertainty is there in that next vision? Do you have kind of a, a hopper, a pipeline of interest, interested parties already? Uh, or is it something that like people are just all over the map still trying to figure out how they want to react to to COVID? Because as you said, bodies don't quit, right? This need yeah. isn't going away. Right. Um, you know, I do have four health systems in the pipeline and they are much larger, uh, which is exciting. Um, in terms of what do I see the rest of 2020 looking like? Um, there's always that, like that sweet spot between casting a goal and a vision and having dreams and, and, and moving towards them and then having realistic goals, points, and dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel like as a founder, I constantly go back and forth between, uh, don't we all? Yeah, exactly. So, um, this year I see us closing our pre-seed round of investments. I see us getting, um, one more paid pilot. So finishing the year with two paid pilots. Um, and, and set up for uh, 2021 to bring in uh, like a first legitimate customer. And I, the only reason I say legitimate is that they would be paying full price. Um, and I see us having a, a full team that is on salary and being paid. That, um, and then you would know they would be dedicated. Exactly. That they would be dedicated <laughs> and that they believe in what we're doing. Right, right. Yes. Um, and Can I, I just want to say real quick, it's funny that people would question their dedication and it's the people with the, who I, I, the sense that I get from that, the more I think about that statement is that their only metric of, of importance is monetary. And so if people aren't Isn't doing something for money, then it can't be important to them when really it's like, no, there are things that are more important to money. More, more important than money. And if you're putting your, your time and your effort into those things, that is like of the utmost importance. You better believe that the employees that I can bring on who've been working pro bono, that I'm so flipping excited to pay them. And I want to be able to, to reward is the wrong word, but just honor their hard work. And I hope that one, if not all of them will be standing next to me when we you know, sell or whatever. And, you know, how many teams can you say we're working pro bono and, um, and then came on and we're salaried? Like, I really want to be able to provide that to, to, for me, that's a big sticking point of showing, um, how grateful I am as well. You can choose to, to answer this question or, or not, but is there, no, I, I'm just looking for, because this is so far outside of my purview and my area of expertise, but when you're looking to raise money, is, let's see, one, have you started valuing your company at, uh, as more, at, a higher, at a higher asking price because of the, uh, the finalization of the pilot and having that pipeline? That's question number one. Yes. Okay, you're, yes. you're nodding vigorously. Uh, and then two, can you share what your current valuation is in these, uh, in these investor meetings? 
Um, we, have, we have a ton of investors listening to this. So. Oh, oh, yes. Okay. Investors. I'll tell you it's between four and six million uh, okay. valuation. Got it. I mean, it, it seems like it's the, it's the type of thing that is either worth zero dollars or is worth many millions of dollars. And there isn't really an in-between because if you're paying people, if you, A, if you're, a, like you need to be paying people and, and B, you, the upside is gigantic on right. this, right? Right. Well, and I'd love just to, for a second, talk about, and I know we're winding down, um, but yeah. talk about the You and I don't talk of, for a second about anything. I know, that's so true. <laughs> um, I, uh, let me just talk for a second about yeah. the whole notion of valuing a startup company and what utter BS that is. Like, I can't even tell you how many times I've pulled out my hair or have literally been on the ground trying to be like, I don't understand how this works because the notion is unreal. It, you know, it's the idea that something that literally doesn't have any revenue that you can put a, a value on and, and, and that you could potentially sell it for something that you're putting this cap and uh, that you're putting this cap and figuring out how to, to share this with investors and tell them that you're a four to five, six million dollar company. And I'm like, how the hell are we a four to six million dollar company? I don't even pay myself or my employees. But the idea is just, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, there's, there's all these different, um, you can, you can follow, uh, 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 not an algorithm, but like, um, um, an sort equation. of a starting formula. Yeah. Uh, yeah. An equation to come up with it based off of, you know, if you have this, then it's $250,000 and then you have this and it's another 250. So you can do that. Or like everyone else does, you can just look at other companies and see what they exited for and kind of work your way back. Um, or I would say even more what other people do is especially no offense, White men are just like, oh yeah, it's definitely, this is a $5 million company right now and it's just me and my homeboys and uh, we don't have a first customer or whatever. And uh, yeah, and they go and raise that shit. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Spoken with just a twinge of exasperation there. <laughs> um, well, I have gigantic hopes for you. And if I had, if I had four to six million, I would just fund the whole thing outright. I know you're not, when you're raising money, I understand you're not looking to raise four to six million, but I, I would, I would, uh, I would, I would, I would, I would fill the, the entire round, uh, if I, or fund the entire round, if I, if I could, because I, I feel like there's no one more dedicated and more passionate about the project and, you know, has, has the background to make it work. Um, it just seems like the, the timing is right from the movement towards telemedicine. Uh, the timing is right in terms of people, uh, of, of, of individuals having expectations of health being, of everything being at your fingertips. And the fact that you have questions and that like WebMD still is the source of so much, uh, uh, you know, Googling essentially. Yeah is ridiculous right yes. like it's, it's time for things to change it's time for things to evolve yes. and you're going to be the one to do it so just Thank don't you. forget you know make sure to come back on the show when you're like the when you're running the when gabby is the next google uh okay you, you need to come okay back. i will well you okay. heard it all here people yep. from grant with small biz gone viral that gabby is the next google so get on board now 
so usually at this point, at the end of the show, I ask where people can find you, you know, how, how they can usually uh, patronize your, your business. But obviously that's kind of something sort of difficult at this point for an individual to do. What is the best way to support you and to support Gabby? Um, well, we do have something for it individuals for females um we have a community that they could join and just going to our website at bgabby.com and that's b as in boy e g a b b i.com um we have a slack community group so you could join our slack community group and that's where a lot of these conversations are going on about your body and the progress that you're making for those who are engaging with our application um as far as other ways that uh you can support us if you know a key decision maker at a health system or health insurance <laughs> feel free to send me an email <laughs> and i'd love an intro yeah yeah, that's oh my gosh, that is so funny. That's like when people tell us, well, you know, we should sell at, uh, you know, Target or Whole Foods, where I'm like, great. Do you, do you know the decision maker? Because I I'm well aware of who my giant potential customers are, who my lottery totally. tickets are. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. You get me that meeting, then sure, we'll be there. Yeah. Perfect. All right. I love it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had such a good time. We, we went long, but that's because, you know, again, you and I, there, there is no one second no answer shorts. to anything. There's no no short shorts. answers here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I don't All know right. if you're going to be doing like um, multiple episodes or next time with whatever, but I'm down to come on another time because we still didn't even get into my rants about being a solo entrepreneur and um, how just utterly devastatingly lonely and difficult it is oh, i'm Caitlin, always willing Caitlin, to don't don't don't, don't you worry you know what uh li little hint for all you listeners out there there's a bonus segment coming up after the credits oh, oh. all right caitlin uh and by the way we're definitely going to have you back that is absolutely it's just a matter of uh, it's a matter of when it's, it's a matter Got of it. it's, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when you can fit us into your busy post raise post for conversion converting four full customers in the pipeline and now you have like seven eight figure revenues and you're like all right well i can fit you in but it has to be a, a 12 minute interview this time right well but you know then i'll do is that i'll be an official sponsor of the podcast Ooh, official snap all right <laughs> i love it caitlin thank you so much for being on the show can't wait to have you back thanks grant thanks so much so fun Thank you to Caitlin Christine for being on the show and being an amazing guest. If you want more information, go to begabby.com, B-E-G-A-B-B-I.com. Time for my unsponsor. Today's show is not brought to you by Startup CPG, a launchpad for consumer packaged goods startups that provides essential resources like connections to industry leaders, opportunities to pitch in front of investors, and another great podcast for small business owners, specifically companies with five employees or fewer. Check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes and updates, but more importantly, go there to tell me who I should interview next, what you like and loathe about this show, and then, in the spirit of supporting small businesses and the humans that run them, go rate this thing five stars somewhere. Lots of people doing little things makes a difference. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for use of their song Geronimo, playing right now. Thank you to Pasty Design for professionalizing the appearance of this show's website, smallbizgoneviral.com, where you can check out all our episodes and guests. 
All stats and stories today come from Worldometer.com, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Statista, Morning Brew, Robin Hood Snacks, and NPR. Someday this will all be over. Until then, stay safe, stay distant, and wear a freaking mask. From my windowless office in Pacific Beach, recorded and produced before and after work hours, I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back with a quick bonus segment. This is a lightning round with four quick questions. Number one, what is the biggest upside of entrepreneurship? Upside would be being able to create something out of nothing, you know, like being the person who, who is building something and bringing it to fruition, I would say. Question number two, what are some common misconceptions about your business? Hmm. For the longest time when I first started this, mind you, it was still a little bit of an idea at that point. But even now, people are like, oh, so you're a nonprofit? I'm like, no, just because we're educating women doesn't mean we can't make money. Just because we're doing something good for the world. Yes, you're, you're doing well by doing good. Right. Uh, what is your least favorite question about your business to receive at a party? Um, it depends on who it's coming from, but typically, and I know you and I can relate on this. It's you should go on shark tank. Uh, yes. Oh, but that's not a question. That's a comment. Um, that's right. Have you been on shark tank? Tank? Yes, exactly. It's it's in the vein of unsolicited advice and, uh, just kind of a, a, yeah. Another one too, I would add is like, Oh, you know, have you um, like connected with and then basically fill in some famous celebrity who's ever had breast cancer? Like they would totally be great for the, I'm like, awesome. And again, one of these things you and I were talking about, do you know them? Great. Give an introduction. You don't. Oh, me either. Like, yeah. Just group text me with Angelina Jolie, please. Yeah, exactly. Like a hundred percent. I'm there. Last question. What is your least favorite part about entrepreneurship? This is your time to vent. Okay, I'm ready. I've been looking forward to this all night. Um, <laughs> my, le- <laughs> my least favorite part is really the loneliness factor. Um, so I'm divorced. You know, I, my brothers are young and they live far away and it's just me. So I wake up in the morning and eat breakfast, have coffee, tea, work out and then start working all alone, especially during COVID. Then I work all day alone. The closest I get to a human is a video call alone. And then I'm home and making dinner and eating alone. And then I go to bed alone. And then I wake up the next day alone to do it all again. And there's so few people who really understand that. Um, And I just, think even people who are married uh, and entrepreneurs, they have, I do think they have a leg up. They have different difficulties as well. But, you know, the whole thing of like being a single female CEO and founder of a company, it is so flipping lonely. And um, a part of me just wonders if like, I'll even be able to interact out in the world after this, because I'm spending so much time alone. You know, it results in a lot of uh, deep, uh, dark spirals alone of, I mean, and I say this all the time to friends and things like, oh, you know, I was on the floor again last night or something, mostly because I feel very grounded when I'm on the floor, but also I get on the floor when I'm depressed and spiraling and 
you know, you don't know who can you talk to about this, who really understands the business and knows what you're going through. And at the end of the day, it all rests on your shoulders. So it's just you. Um, so there's a lot of really dark things that you experience as a solo founder. Um, and then there's a lot of great celebrations, but at the end of the day, like I want to celebrate with someone too. I mean, when we launched our initial assessment on March 13th, I literally popped a bottle of champagne on my own to celebrate that we did it, poured a glass and was like, I don't even want it. Like, this is not, no one wants to celebrate alone. Okay. I think my rant is done. I, I appreciated every word of it because I can, I can relate to some of it. I cannot relate to all of it, but I do know that the struggle of being an, or the experience of being an entrepreneur is, is a struggle unique into itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that this, that this interview, this process has been somewhat cathartic because that's what it was designed to be is to, yeah. is to, and I say at the top of every show to show small business owners that they are not alone, that we will get through this together and that we will come out of it on the other side. Yeah, I totally agree, Grant. With that, Caitlin, thank you for being on the show. Yes, thank you. Such an honor. 